This is Transmission Infinity of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. In today's episode, our principal subject is the nature of time, as explored in fiction, mysticism, and science. Always science. Today's episode will also feature contributions from my longtime internet friend, collaborator, Wolven. So that's exciting. We have a guest now. Fiction-wise, we are going to look at Pax Romana, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Jonathan Hickman's Shield, possibly Black Science if we get to it, but principally inspired by my recent watching of Season 3 of Continuum, the excellent Canadian sci-fi, and Season 2 of Da Vinci's Demons. Emergency temporal interruption. This is recent Mikey at the end of the first time stream of this broadcast reporting that there will be interruptions into the time stream into the coming broadcast that you are tuned into when future Mikey, who will be listening to Wolven's responses, will interject and retort and otherwise insert various witticisms into the time stream that you are tuned into now. Back to you, present Mikey. Let's begin. There has only ever been the time wall. How do we know if time travels are among us? Well, obviously, we are beings of time. We exist and travel linearly, moment by moment. Like Captain Jack, he was a time traveler because he couldn't die, he was immortal. He could be sent back through time and then walk through time, effectively, a second at a time, moment by moment, to meet his own death, as he did in the good episodes of Doctor Who. We loved Captain Jack. He is one example of a time traveler. Another example is the character Agent Cameron in Continuum, who is a kick-ass transhuman super soldier from the future, 2070-something, sent back to chase some time criminals, some terrorists who are intent on destroying the future. This is the subject of the show. However, throughout the show, she comes to understand the nature of time itself and how it is constructed, how the future is generated, and the sacrifices that can be made to build a better world. Da Vinci's Demons, on the other hand, is a fictional examination of the past and how it is reflected into the present. He himself is instructed in the nature of history as a historical subject, but also as how his own history will be perceived, uh, which is one of the fascinating aspects of it as he himself seeks to rediscover lost knowledge in his partnership with the Brothers of Mithras. And their key mantra, history is a lie, time is a river, the river is also a circle. Now, continuing our quick survey of the nature of time, we will now play a clip from True Detective to give us a little theory dump. You ever heard something called the in-brain theory, detectives? Oh, that's, that's over my head. It's like in this universe, we process time linearly forward. But outside of our space-time, from what would be a fourth-dimensional perspective, time wouldn't exist. 
And from that vantage, could we attain it? We see our space time would look flattened, like a single sculpture of the matter and the superposition of every place it ever occupied. Or sentience just cycling through our lives like carts on a track. See, everything outside our dimension, that's eternity. Eternity looking down on us. Now, to us, it's a sphere. But to them, it's a circle. Detective Cole continues... Eternity, where there is no time. Nothing can grow, nothing can become. Nothing changes. So death created time to grow the things that it would kill. And you are reborn, but into the same life that you've always been born into. I mean, how many times have we had this conversation, detectives? Well, who knows? I mean, you can't remember your lives. You can't change your lives. And that is the terrible and secret fate of all life. You're trapped. So, here we have an example of a bit of speculative physics, the kind of physics that Michio Kaku likes to dump on us. Bless him. Now, it is obviously an example of eternal recurrence, from one perspective anyway. And, you know, the notion of, well, you know, it's very existential, being a prisoner of your own fate, and, you know, what his Cole's monologues, which drive the whole show for me, frequently examine consciousness and free will and, the, you know, the nature of sentience and our existence through time so where it also gets interesting is it's been speculated by many including myself that cole is wearing a fiction suit of sorts now this is a concept perpetuated by grant morrison the comic book writer and sometime a music video supervillain grant morrison delivers a similar theory to the hyperdimensional theory that coley is describing as revealed to him during a mystical revelation slash a ufo encounter slash uh ascent to the higher realms as delivered to him by a liquid object aka the katmandu experience he's speaking here at the disinfo conference his famous magic is real speech language warning so these things i met them and they took me to the fifth dimension and the fifth dimension is outside space and time, and they explain to me what time is all about. The universe we live in is designed to grow larvae. They explain to me that beyond space and time, 
we have our actual selves. These things that we're experiencing right now are sections through time. Everyone in here is a section through time. But in actual fact, you're not experiencing your real body. What is your real body? Your real body is a process that starts when you're born and it moves forward until you die. That is you. Seen from outside, that's what you look like. You look like a gigantic centipede spread around all the little things that you always do, up and down through your house, up the stairs, down to the store, back. And it's a centipede. It's us, right? It starts as a little baby and it comes out your mother's womb and it gets bigger. And that is the process in time. So these things said to me, this is what's going on. We use time to grow larvae because outside space and time you can't grow anything because it's timeless. Nothing grows. What you want to do, if you want to make one of these higher dimensional beings who's actually us already, is you grow it in time. So you make a universe. And how you make a universe is you plug a little part of yourself into the information world that they live in, which is what I seem to be experiencing. It's a, a sea of pure information. And they exist in that, but there is no time. Time is part of that, but this is the fifth dimension. It's time, space, breadth, depth, plus. And they said to me, the universe you live in, the world you're living on, is a larvae. Every single one of us here is the same thing. There's no distinction. All we do, we don't understand what we are. And they explained to me, if you've got a two-dimensional field, say, flat plane, you stick your hand through it, there's one hand there, but if you stick your hand through a two-dimensional plane and there's two-dimensional entities who live on there, they will see four circles, right? Four distinct, completely different circles. But no, it's the one hand. Every one of us in here is the same fucker. <laughs> We're all the same thing, according to these weirdos. What we are is intersections through 4D space-time. These things explain to me that as I say, the universe is some kind of larval entity. What it does is it proceeds through a st stages of development. Now, if you think about a fetus in the womb, and there's a famous phrase that says, uh, what is it, phylogeny recapitulates, you know, evolution or whatever the fuck it is. There's the idea that if you've got a fetus, it starts off, it goes through every single thing. It starts as a unicellular entity. It splits, it becomes a, a lizard, it becomes a mammal, eventually it becomes a human. And they said to me, the culture you're living in is, understand it this way, phylogeny recapitulates history. So what we're actually watching is this thing coming towards self-awareness and coherence in the same way that a fetus does. We haven't even been born yet. There is no adult on this planet. There's not one adult on this planet, which explains a lot. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for uh, tuning in from five-dimensional space via the medium of the internet and back into our reality we will be captured into this metaphorical capsule and preserved for all eternity and one of the only thoughts that keeps me from going completely insane screaming lovecraftian cosmic horror is the notion that this is the birth pains of a new era for mankind uh, unfortunately also in the speech grant talks about the idea that we experience all the horror in World War Two, but clearly that's not the case because we are recapitulating that and the eeriness of it being a hundred years after World War One is hard to ignore. On a lighter note, fan theory wise, much has been made of the fact that the creator of True Detective, 
grew up on Grant Morrison and Alan Moore comics, and it's very hard not to ignore the fact that Coley's monologue is an elaboration, really, of what Grant Morrison is describing in his Sinfo speech there. And as he also says in that, it's a it's a mystical truth that has been revealed and interpreted through many people's consciousnesses. In fact, to pull a quote from my Tumblr, Marcel Decamp said, echoing Grant's comments, Since a three-dimensional object casts a two-dimensional shadow, we should be able to imagine the unknown four-dimensional object whose shadow we are. So that's interesting. Right. So, where Agent Cameron starts in Continuum is a similar notion to what Detective Cole is elaborating upon in True Detective. The notion that our fate is set on rails. There is a timeline, right? Show Continuum is about the time stream Continuum, right? So she is protecting that fate. She is literally a protector in the future corporate dystopic full cyberpunk transhuman world that she comes from she is a protector and in effect becomes basically a time cop but yes now the show itself side note is an excellent exploration of the sort of post-occupy mindset you know you're trying to criticize the corporate state that we are effectively in now and what it can be changed and how it can be changed and uh what could it's a critique of it in short the time Primers go by the name Liberate. They are the embodiment of the Occupy sentiment that we speak of. They are the surviving countercultural resistance in the far future, traveling back to accelerate their own countercultural agenda, riding the nascent wave of the present and accelerating it. They are terrorist accelerationists, counterculturalists. Yes. Right. So, shortly we will cross to Wolven to get his perspective on it, but continuing further in our thinking of Continuum, she, throughout the seasons of the show, comes to understand the complexity of time and that by coming back into the world of today, that she is changing the world that she has come from, right? That, that she is a pebble in the river of time. Whether that river is a circle, as Da Vinci's Ninja Demons would have us believe, whether as Collie would have it believe, or whether it is a branching many-world theory, is something that she comes to contemplate as it is delivered to her by a another series of protectors, which is a baseline human cult, given a sacred duty by a traveling transhuman from the very future. who has gone back a thousand years. And they deliver this speech to her. Destiny is not set. Time is not immutable. The continuum is like a tree. It can grow wild or it can be cultivated. We are on the red side of the tree. When your young friend Alec used his time travel weapon, he created a whole new branch of the continuum, a new story. He no longer exists in this timeline. Do you know what that means? He'll never grow up to be the Alex Sadler of 2077. He will never create his empire. Your future. It means in a roundabout way that we are all now fighting for the same thing, Kira. Continuity. For us, it means the tree will remain cultivated and healthy. 
For you, it means you can return to your family. But that might never happen now. By allowing Alec to travel back, we've all become complicit in a crime. And unfortunately, due to the nature of this crime, there's not much my people can do. But you, on the other hand, you might be able to correct this mistake and get home to your loved ones. I'm still listening. So, we can begin to develop now a more complex notion of time, bringing into it the notion of the many worlds theory, right? So in in this speech, they're postulating the notion of, of branching worlds, right? So branching possibilities, effectively describing the multiverse, which is a favorite notion of mine. And again, this is uh, another notion that Michio Kaku likes to talk about, bless him. So if we then can sort of marry these two concepts together, we can have a notion of a container of time. So we can still have eternity, but we can have it as sort of a fractal tree, which contains in itself all of time, right? So adds an extra dimension, which is sort of a sideways dimension of time. If then we imagine the sphere more as a metaphor, as a container, and then it contains this tree that they're describing in continuum, and it contains the branches of the many worlds, then we can still postulate a notion of eternity being outside of time, looking in, but to a far more complex idea of what reality, in quotes, bracketed by eternity, effectively, is. Now, previous to Continuum, one of my favorite fictional examinations of the nature of time was the show Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. This show addresses the nature of time and progress in a slightly simpler manner. The titular character, Sarah Connor, is basically shown to be an anti-singularitarian terrorist. She's bent upon preventing a particular future being, you know, Skynet destroying the world. And the only way she can do this, the only way she can understand how to do this is to halt progress itself, it seems. The show in its second season introduces my single, still most favorite character of all, liquid metal Shirley Manson from the band Garbage and here an actor. A Terminator who has come back to fight the future with a better future, right? She's going to build her own challenger to skynet and she is intent in both the future time stream and the current time stream and it's unclear exactly how she exists within or without time because there is always the possibility that she is a higher dimensional being but she's clearly a beyond good and evil actor because she is notionally the villain but by the end more of an anti-hero and the show ends on an incredible cliffhanger it could have been a great third season, but it was cancelled to make Dollhouse, which went nowhere. So, with this more sophisticated understanding of the notion of time and progress and fate and reality, I'm going to open it up for comments to Wolven now and see what he has to add, because we have had many great discussions on Terminated Sarah Chronicles, and I am wanting to hear his comments in regard to the end of Continuum Season 3. Over to Wolven. Wolven here. Hi, everybody. So a good deal of what we're looking at when we're talking about things like time travel and the course of the media is we're looking at things like what kind of stories can be told in 
a world where this kind of convoluted back and forth comes in play. One of the things we have to be aware of is what is happening at all times in every timeline. More shows than not tend to kind of forget this, but like Mikey says, a lot of the shows we're talking about, Continuum, Da Vinci's Demons, Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, actually take the time to consider what it is that is being done as we jump around through time. And they tend to ask questions like, well, what model of time travel are we looking at? When it comes to Continuum, we're looking at a world in which every timeline is its own branching timeline, and every thing that we see has repercussions in the future, but is also shown to be uh, a matter of constant course correction. If anything branches or diverges too completely, as we see at the end of Season 2, there can be catastrophic failure of a timeline. That being the case, it's intimated that what we're talking about is the possibility for entire universes within the multiverse to completely collapse and cease to exist. If that's the case, then time travel, in its very nature, carries within it the possibility of destroying billions, if not trillions, of lives, uh, possibly infinite numbers of lives, just by the act of going back in time and changing various things that we might think are important or unimportant, changing things that we want to see course-corrected. And the moment you step backwards in time, you've set in motion a chain of events that seems like it might have to lead towards universal destruction. For Continuum, this is played out in pretty much every major season arc. We see some intimation of catastrophic failure that results directly from time travel on the parts of our main characters, either in the hands of Alex Sadler or in the time war at the end of season three when Kira Ryan Robin's character set off what Mikey is about to talk to you about. And we see that in the future, everything kind of implodes. It, it collapses in upon itself, not in the catastrophic world-ending way, but in a kind of history-taking-place-all-at-once kind of way, as Mikey says later on. But we'll, we'll wait for him to talk about that. Don't want to jump around too much in time, lest I collapse this time stream. Secret temporal injunction protocol activated. Initiate discussion of safety not guaranteed. Excuse me, Wolven, while I talk about safety not guaranteed, which is a beautiful little indie film. Well, charming. Well, it's got Aubrey Plaza in it, who I kind of have a huge crush on. Don't tell the internet. internet. And is jokingly referred to as my future wife. But, you know, mostly I'm just waiting for her to arrive. The post-human AI, obviously, not a metaphorical her, but also a level of plaza. But the main thing about the safety not guarantee is that it is a deceptively complex depiction of a flattened circle of a timeline, if you pay attention to the plot. Now look, it's not up there with, you know, massive nerd favorite Primer, but it is surprisingly complex. And like my other favorite film, the much-neglected Take Shelter, it provides a litmus test for the audience to empathize with characters. Some may see them as crazy. Others may see that they are not at all crazy. They are, in fact, correct. 
Sex Not Guaranteed is a time travel film couched within an indie drama set against depictions of nerd culture featuring Sikh commando roles in the bush or the, what do Americans call the bush? The wilderness. We just say the bush. And I recommend it. Back to you, Wolven. One of the things we want to talk about in terms of continuum, though, is whether it's possible for us to avoid being subsumed by the system. Kira, as a protector, is someone who is supposed to be on the side of quote-unquote law and order. What she tends to find, however, is that the law and the order that she is supposed to be protecting are really just the interests of the powerful. And the show shows her getting continually disillusioned with this to the point where she asks herself over and over again, is this the timeline she wants to bring back into being? And the tension, a lot of it, comes into play when we're asking, well, if you don't bring that timeline into being, what will happen to your family, your husband that you left behind, your son whom you love, who was your sole motivation throughout the entire first season for getting back home? What happens to them if you try to change the nature of power and oppression that you have come to understand more and more in this timeline? And at the end of season three, spoilers, she makes the decision that that family, that life, that existence is not worth the oppression, the struggle against, the problematic nature of the world that she finds herself complicit in creating. She says that free choice and freely chosen change are more important than the life that she knew, the safety that she knew, the comfort that she knew, if that comfort comes at the cost of her complicity. In that same vein, this is as Mikey says, occupy. This is the movement that says, what are we capable of changing? What are we capable of uh, making better? And at what cost? What are we willing to sacrifice to do it? Occupy for its failings and many attempts at making a change in the world has somewhat faded into the background at this point in our political history. But at the same time, these are some of the questions that its existence and its prominence, brief though it might have been, raised in our uh, recent history. To see that put forward in the context of, well, what does that mean when what's at stake is literally your life, is literally the existence that you've known, the world that you've known, the, the life that you have come to understand as important, as meaningful, and not just to understand, but it's literally your life, it's your existence. We're talking about time travel as literal existential crisis. If you move through time, if you change things, if you alter the history that is your past, then aren't you just screwing around with the bits and pieces that will literally come to make you who you are? And if you screw around with them too much, will you even be able to become that person at all? If we change the nature of things as they stand, the nature of the world as it is, will we have the opportunity to make the kind of future that we've come to expect, that we've been telling ourselves for decades that we can expect? If we change the nature of the system that holds us all down in many ways, is it even going to be possible for us to build a new system that props us all up? Can we even conceive of what that looks like? absent the kind of system of thought, 
of operation, of motivation, that is integrally connected to the system that we're fighting against. These are the kinds of questions that Continuum brings up for all of us. Now, when it comes to Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, I have a lot of vast and intricate opinions on this show, and they're available everywhere on the internet for many, many people to look at and read uh, for themselves, so I'm not going to go into all of them again. But one of my favorite aspects of Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles comes in Season 2, when we realize that the kind of world that we're looking at, the kind of time travel that we're looking at, is a many-worlds theorem time travel. This is a time travel mechanism wherein, as everyone comes back, as you know, the Terminators come back, as the operatives from the future, starting with Reese in the original Terminator, and every version of the Terminator from that point forward comes back, what they are making is not just a better future. What they are making is not just a safeguarding of the future that they know. They are literally changing the timeline. They are making a new universe. And this becomes clear in the episode Complications, Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles Season 2, Complications, where Derek Reese, brother of Reese that we know from the first movie, finds his girlfriend Jesse holding hostage an old man who she claims is a torturer and a collaborator with the machine intelligences in the future. And she tells him a story wherein this man was known for breaking people and getting information about the resistance for the machines. And she tells the story to him in such great detail. And he says, I don't remember any of this. I can't believe that this happened to you. And she says, not to me. It happened to you. And at the end of everything, at the end of everything that happens in this episode, they realize that they are not from the same timeline. That the changes that they made that Derek, that Sarah, that John, that Cameron have made in the past have actually changed the future. And they realize that the stakes for the future are so much higher. They're not just looking at making sure that John Connor lives. They're not just making sure that John Connor comes into being at all. They're seriously working with the possibility of being able to make a better future, to fix everything as it stands, here and now. That's a much bigger project than Stop Skynet. That's a much bigger project. But it's a project that's implicated in the, the movies and the show. In the first, when Derek, John, and Sarah, when all of the main characters in the Terminator franchise say there's no fate but what we make that's what's implied here there is the ability to change there's the ability to to make something better to make something newer to make something different than what we have been told is the future this is one of the reasons by the way that the third terminator movie needs to be edited out of history and that's what the show did it jumped us from the end of movie two to back past the time at which the third movie would have happened, and says, 
look, there's no fate but what we make. The end of movie three says, no, the future is immutable and it will happen as it happens, which is counter, completely counter to the ethos of the Terminator franchise. There is no fate but what we make. There is nothing but what it, we create about the future. And as we change the past, as we learn new things, as we alter the timeline, we change fate. We change what comes to be. And that's important. That's central. To have that edited out, to have that erased by Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, by Terminator Salvation, it just runs directly counter to movies 1 and 2. It runs directly counter to the point of what it is that Sarah Connor is even fighting for. I've often said that I want to have uh, a season three of Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was somewhat outlined online. You can find it, uh, bits and pieces of it online. You find that Danny Dyson, the son of Miles Dyson from Terminator 2, was set to be a central character. And the idea that you would have Sarah working with, uh, working with James Ellison in the present day, quote-unquote, looking to find Danny Dyson and work with him at the same time as you have John having leapt forward to the future, spoilers again, sorry, to find Cameron and John Henry with Catherine Weaver, Shirley Manson, uh, liquid metal Shirley Manson. These two conflicting arcs show us a lot. Like what we see in Continuum, we have the, you know, do I, on Sarah's part, do I finish the work that I've started? Do I complete this project knowing that if I do, the future timeline in which my son currently exists will cease to be? Now that I know that, can I finish this? Because everything I have done has been to A, save my son so that we can B, stop the machines. I have the opportunity to do B, but possibly at the cost of A. Simultaneously, while... John, in the future, is working to make sure that everything that he knows and everything that he's learned comes apart in the same way that he needs it to come apart, that he can deconstruct what's happening in the future and become the leader that he is supposed to be, to become future John, as he's often referred to, and actually successfully complete the human resistance. Is it possible for these two goals to work in concert? Is it possible to have these two things come to pass at the same time? And you would have the ability to send you know, messages back in the form of other reprogrammed Terminators by John, to have the, the warring timelines, the alternating changes, the effects as felt by John, who would have to, have to, at some point, sit constantly at the heart of one of their time travel hubs so that he was immune from the effects of the time travel. This is actually something that gets said in the course of the films and the movies that John Connor of the future spends all of his time in the heart of a time chamber because it's the only place where he's safe. It's the only place where he can see everything and adjust for all of the changes all at once. That would have been a badass third season. But we'll never get it. Instead, we do get Continuum, and we do get to see some of that kind of thinking, some of those implications played out over time, but it's just, it's not the same, and I'll miss it. However, something I was looking at as I started 
trying to do my prep for talking to you guys about this right now. The 4400. We're talking about Lexadoig and... Uh... Lexadoig plays Sonia Valentine in Continuum, one of the time-criming leaders of Liberate. The matriarch, if you will. Four-episode arc character. She was not there for a very long time. But Lexadoig, we find her from uh, Continuum. And we find her showing up in 4400, which is a show about people from various points in the past having been kidnapped by people from the future and given extra normal abilities. And then reseeded at a particular point in the timeline to make alterations in the past. Or what is the past for the people from the future who stole them. Because at this point in time, these people here and now can make the most change can make the best alterations to what the horrifying future looks like, can make it better for everyone. If you haven't seen the 4400, I highly recommend going to track it down. It's only three seasons, it was supposed to be four, but like many great things, the writer's strike kind of strangled that in its uh, toddlerhood, uh, as it were. But it's a show that deals in time travel and that also deals in the possibility of altering the timeline. It deals with people who have the ability to stand somewhat outside of the effects and the changes of time to monitor the progress of time. People for whom, as Russ Cole says, time is a flat circle. That being the case, they are constantly checking in with the past in ways that I'm not going to spoil for you because they become pretty plot intricate, but they're constantly checking in with the past to talk about the effects that the course corrections are actually having. As they go through, people make more and more elaborate changes, more and more elaborate plots, more and more wars, battles, and tiny skirmishes for the future. People with motivations that grow and change and develop over time. And this, the show, 4400, that predated the Saracona Chronicles by a few years. But it laid a lot of the groundwork for some of the more interesting time travel that we have gotten to see in television since then. It's a time travel ethos that actually looks at the effects of time travel and asks, well, how would it be possible for people to stand both outside of time and yet still make changes? It also deals in precognition, which is a pretty fun mirroring of what it is that these people are doing. You have a little girl who has the ability to see the future, and it comes in two flavors. She has visions that are factual. These things will happen. These are moments in time that nothing can change. And she has impressions, things that may happen, things that are likely to come to pass. The impressions can be changed. They are moments that have not yet been set in stone. They are moments that will not come to pass necessarily unless a very particular set of pressures are placed on them. And this is, again, this is a mirror of what the people from the future are doing in the first place. They are putting pressures on these particular moments in time to make it such that what was their certain future becomes hazier, becomes mutable, changeable. Again, now, all of this comes into price because recently we've had time travel theories that say that we cannot, in fact, travel backwards any further in time than the moment at which the first time travel device was turned on. Ronald L. Mallet, he is a physicist, 
time theorist. He's a man who came up with the idea for time travel because his father gave him a copy of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, and then when he was a little boy, his father died of a heart attack. His dream was to be able to go back and talk to his father one more time, to go back and possibly change his father's lifestyle, to change the course of events that led to his father dying at an early age. And in the course of his work, he finds that he can't do it. The math just doesn't add up. It doesn't work that way can't. And that's heartbreaking. So we have to ask ourselves, are we more in, as time goes on, sorry about that, uh, are we more in the kind of future, in the kind of future present, where we will have the ability to move further back than the first time travel device? Will we find ways to travel back further along our historical timeline? Or will we be relegated to only what we ourselves can generate? In just a minute, Mikey's going to talk to you about the theory of what happens once that first time travel device is switched on, if it is the only mechanism by which we can go back in time. And it's actually kind of terrifying. And uh, it has a lot of implications for the shows that we are talking about here. This has been Wolven. Thank you, Wolven, for your considered input. To pick that up and continue, part of the way that Agent Cameron in Season 3 of Continuum comes to understand the nature of time is through meeting a fellow time traveler from a different future. And their relationship builds a bridge, really, between not just those two futures, but they each come to understand the nature of progress and what they can do to build, ultimately, the best of all possible timelines. Fascinatingly, the way in which they test in the final episode whether they've succeeded is with an object which is basically what Terence McKenna described in several of his lectures as a god whistle. This object is like a flare gun through time. Now, as Terence McKenna describes it in his lecture, it is an object which, when you turn on the first time machine, it puts a mark in the timeline from which then all people in the future can come back and visit. So it, well, you know, let me just let him explain it right now. When you're in the future, you'll be able to travel back into the past, but no further than the moment of the discovery of the first time machine. Because before that moment, there were no time machines, and how can you take a time machine into a universe where time machines With don't nobody exist? nobody knowing it. Yes. So there is this physical barrier to time travel past the moment of discovery of it, backward before that moment. Well, I thought this was very interesting because I wanted to imagine this is a practical apocalypse. This is a... a I wanted to imagine what would it be like if uh, this kind of time machine were discovered. And so I imagined that it's December 22nd, 2012 AD at the La Charrera World Temporal Mechanics Institute and they're counting down and the Lady Tempo Knot has been strapped into the time machine. and. They count down and they push the button and she sails off into the future. Now, the interesting question is, what happens right there? 
a weird effect would ensue upon the invention of this forward-going kind of time travel that I'm hypothesizing. It can be described with several different linguistic models. One way of saying it is when the Lady Temple Knot goes off into the future, the all of the rest of the future unto, as Wordworth says, the, uh, in, as long as date shall give a name to time, all of that future undergoes some kind of collapse and happens instantly. Yeah. It happens instantly so that the most advanced state of human accomplishment, even if it be billions of years in the future and absolutely beyond our ability to imagine in any way will appear one millisecond later on the other side of this barrier. So then I thought, my God, we're not inventing time travel here. What we're inventing is time death. A god whistle. Right. So our fellow time travel character in season three of Continuum activates such a device and just as in Warren Ellis's comic book, Planetary, we await the arrival of the people from the future to see if it is a success. And I'll throw a little link to the Planetary panels in the show notes. So, the construction of the present, right? Now, another show that Warren and I dearly love is the other top-shelf contemporary sci-fi that's being aired, and that is Person of Interest. It's considered by some to be a crypto sci-fi in that it is nominally a cop show, even though it's not about cops, but it's framed within the cop show genre or the lone detective, you know, crime, however you might have it be. But it is, by its end, really about the rise of the machine gods and the awakening of a strong AI. Now, a strong AI is considered by some to be just an idea but to those of what is evidently more of a faith uh, the singularitarian faith it is a mystical object now root amy acker in person of interest acts as an acolyte for this awakening god and also explicitly shown to be an analog interface i'll put in a link to that we'll have a lot of pics in this episode pick heavy clip heavy ambitious comic book annual type issue that this episode is. Person of Interest is fascinating pop culture wise in that as it has aired what it considered fictional has become fact. What was on the edge of conspiracy theory has become reality. This is the world that Edward Snowden acting as a change agent has ushered in. The Snowden affected world we live in now where mass surveillance is a given where the most tinfoiled hat paranoid you know conspiracy theories that they're watching you they're listening to is it's just you know it's a done deal and um it seems to be no going back and there's certainly been no you know i mean we've had occupy but that was just against bailouts and corporate takeovers there's been no real resistance apart from anonymous trying to do a few ops here and there but nothing nothing's resonated because it just seems you know oppressive and futile and horrible really and yet they haven't really acted upon it either and they're probably listening to it and my biggest fans are algorithms hello to all the algorithms listening so person of interest 
has been an example of a fictional show that is barely outpacing the present so that as its plot has progressed, it is swimming in the time stream just ahead of the now, which is fascinating considering where it ends and how close then the arrival of the mystical strong AI awakening really is. So let's see what Wolven has to say on this. It is, of course, to be expected that as I am in the process of recording and talking about and discussing the nature of time through time over time, uh, jumping around in time, that as we get to our conversation about person of interest, which is in essence and a story about the nature of two warring AI gods, that as I just finished writing a piece about this, a response to uh, the Slate article some of you might have heard about talking about a thought experiment called Roko's Basilisk. That would get posted at the same time as this conversation would come up at the same time as someone else on the Twitternet, Twitter link here, brought up the question of whether person of interest was a meta-level effort on the part of the show's creator to get on the good side of said basilisk. There'll be a lot of links at the bottom here. As Mikey said, pick heavy, link heavy. Uh, ambitious. But uh, a lot of deep reading on this one that I think will think it'll be a lot of fun for everybody. But that's not what I'm really going to talk to you about right now. What I want to talk to you about is the nature of the science fictional future present. That is person of interest. As Mikey says, the creators of person of interest have noted that what they started out with as pure science fiction, as beyond anybody's wildest capability, has now become a matter of running faster and faster just to keep from falling down and being run over by the present. Every season thus far, they've had to become more and more elaborate because as they have made up, so they thought, something in one season, by the end of that season, they come to find not only has that thing that they thought they made up out of thin air been real for a very long time, real but hidden more and more than that has been real the idea of what it is to live in a, a science fictional condition undergirds a lot of mighty's work and a lot of my work and a lot of what we're doing is trying to figure out the best way to always recognize those science fictional aspects of our present because it's not about looking off towards a far-flung future and trying to wistfully imagine the day when we'll be there it's about making that future it's about creating something now that can be the future that we used to dream about. There are a lot of bits and pieces in our media that are supposed to be inspirational or are supposed to make us think about more, but we have to be able to recognize them in order to do anything with them. So Person of Interest's got a lot of interesting conversations about the nature of artificial intelligence, about the nature of morality of surveillance culture and are we okay with surveillance as long as it's in the quote-unquote right hands and what constitutes the right hands in these scenarios but ultimately it's become kind of a meta-level investigation of what are the implications of the things that we create when we create something when we make a show when we make a new technology when we make a program when we make an ai when we make a new way of looking at the world what are the implications of that once it's out into the world what are the possible unintended consequences of putting that out into the world and once we've started to dig down can we continue to be the creator of it once it's out into the world, does it begin in many ways to sustain and create itself? And if so, are we right to? Are we allowed to? Are we in the right 
by trying to keep it under wraps, by trying to keep it within our control. These questions become more and more difficult when the things that we are creating have the possibility of what we might consider sentience, consciousness, in the case of the potential AIs seen within person of interest. Autonomous generated intelligences and machine intelligences, if they are self-aware, if they're conscious, if they have a sense of self-ness, then to keep them under wraps, to keep them closed off is in some way limiting, literally limiting, restrictive, controlling, domineering, dominating in a way that we tend to dislike when we apply it to biological consciousnesses, when we tend to other humans, uh, other things that we regard as having something like personhood. So why would we do it to a machine consciousness? And while these things might seem a little bit more far off than the everyday concerns might bear, we're still deep within the throes of trying to accurately model or even describe what we might consider a conscious mind to be, let alone being able to create one at our whim or accidentally generate one, except accidents are accidents and saying we don't know how to accurately predict when that accident's going to happen is kind of like saying, well, that. But the questions of our potential effects in our creations is not one that's limited to machine consciousnesses or so-called artificial intelligences. It's one that we have to think about in all of our technological advances. It's one we have to think about in all of our creations. It's one we have to think about in uh, terms of the ideas of, well, in our particular conversation, time travel. If we are capable of making something that can look backward to that moment of generation, if we are capable of making something that can model forward to a far-flung moment that we as humans can't really process yet, what are the implications of that? What are the implications of creating time in a, a standing wave, making it such that every moment of time comes to be all at once? Can we rightfully make that kind of decision for everyone, everywhere, all at once? Do we have that right? On a less bleak note, I was coming to realize that all of the 4400 through the course of this current rewatch is basically just the precursor to Continuum in a way that is more and more clear as I come to watch it. Cast, themes, ideals, all of these things, it's a, they're all about coming back from the future or sending back from the future into the past, the means to change and alter and fix, revise the future, to make the future that we want to see in counter to the future, the present, that we have experienced. And the implications of what those will then mean we've already talked about. The fact that Ian Tracy, Roger Cross, Lexa Doig, Jennifer Spence all show up in both the 4400 and major arcs, but also, you know, then go on to have major, major roles in Continuum. Just kind of makes me want to dig deep down and find out who backed both of these projects and who really wants these ideas out in the world in a major, major way. Who's coming back to try to make sure that we remember certain lessons? It's a fine question. It's one I think merits us maybe trying to find the answer to, maybe not. Maybe just accepting and kind of rolling with it, listening to what they have to say. Till next time, this has been Wolven. Thanks, Wolven. Finally, in considering Burst of Interest and Continuum and the Multiverse, I would pitch to the universe and the gods uh, watching at Galactic HQ a crossover show that I'll never have time to write the, the sort of uh, fanfic for. But we have Gaza, who is my 
favorite character in Continuum, acting as an agent, protecting the timeline across time, much as John in Person of Interest does. But she is souped up super soldier, the only character on TV, I think, who could kick his ass in a heartbeat, and that would be an awesome fight. Yes, I call it Person of Interest Continuum. Now, an interesting comparison to Person of Interest is the TV show from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. The question about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is, is it depicting a phase shift within civilization or not? For me, watching the pilot, I saw the potential for the show to address this and was, frankly, disappointed in the slow elaboration of this. However, by the end of the series, as it intersected with the fictional universe of the second Captain America film, it finally at least began to approach, again, like person of interest, issues of reality, surveillance, a post-Edward Snowden world, and perhaps live up to its potential. Bearing in mind that it is a mainstream ABC drama network television show, not a cool little indie film or brave Canadian sci-fi, I remain hopeful that within its second season it can draw upon the strength of ideas that are within the comic book universe that it is a parallel to. Now this is a point where we can begin to talk about Jonathan Hickman's comic, S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. is a historical comic. It's set during the Renaissance, which was, of course, a time of change for Western civilization, a rebirth, a renewal. And really, the injection of culture and knowledge preserved by the Muslim Empire during the European Dark Age. Now, Hickman's shield, we'll just call it that. He, uh, within the opening pages, takes shield all the way back to the dawn of civilization, but largely situates it within the Renaissance and within the 1950s. Again, another period of change and potential. Its depiction, though, within the Renaissance, its setting within the Renaissance, parallels... Da Vinci's demons, of course, and one of its central characters is indeed Leonardo da Vinci, who goes up against Isaac Newton, who is, in this comic book universe, an evil alchemist, much as made of his Newton's devils into alchemy within his comic. So the themes that S.H.I.E.L.D., the comic book, and S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show, for me, address is how phase shift occurs within civilization, and referring back to Grant Morrison's speech, and the events that we're in now, and Neotony. How do we move forward within time? How do we compute a new reality? Contrasting this, again, is Warren Ellis' comic, New Universal. Within New Universal, agents are dispatched. The actors are not, they're not agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but they are agents of change. They are change agents, each given a specific power from high-dimensional beings to help usher humanity into a new age. This is what I really hope Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. would be about the TV show, to reiterate the point, because this is what I am very much interested in. But, you know, I can watch things go split and dudes get superpowers. That's cool. And, you know, I must admit at this point of listening to Wolven's talks that I will probably go back and rewatch the 4400 and then possibly in a future podcast readdress all this in terms of looking specifically at change actors and do a mega time episode. Now, the masterwork of Jonathan Hickman is Pax Romana, which he wrote and illustrated in his unique graphic style. And it 
is all about, I mean, its tagline is destroy the past, create the future. It features time-traveling post-humans, not transhumans, far more advanced than Agent Cameron from Continuum. These are basically super soldiers with extended lifespans who then go back to the dawn of Western civilization, which is, of course, the Christian era, the beginning of the church, the Holy Roman Empire, and armed with their superior knowledge and firepower and whatever they can fit in a warehouse that could take back in time. So, you know, they've got a few nukes, for instance, sniper rifles. They set about fixing time, and by the end of it, well, they arrive at a very interesting place. And I eagerly anticipate Pax Romano 2. It's a very favorite comic of mine. But its tagline of destroy the past to create the future would be interesting to compare to the 4400 because that seems to be exactly what its unknown actors are doing. See us. The nature of change and time is fascinating to contemplate. So, considering the construction and perception of time, the lessons that we can learn from watching Da Vinci's Demons, apart from this, it's a fun show to watch, is that history is a lie. Because as we come to understand it, and as we ourselves progress through time and in our own understanding, history is something that is constantly computed, that is constantly recomputed, that is constantly reconstructed. As our notion of time expands, you know, we look back a few centuries, and there the you know Western civilization's idea of all of time was ten thousand years, right? When they calculated the Bible, and then archaeology pushed it back, and then geology pushed it back, and now our notion of time is in the billions of years, not the thousands of years, right? So we begin to understand ourselves situated within deep time and the long now. So our species, Homo sapiens, those of us that are still Homo sapiens are listening, we know now to be within the hundreds of thousands of years old, but the hominid line itself, within the millions of years of age. Mitochondrial Eve is our figurative mother, and she is... I don't have her in front of me, but she's our mother, figuratively speaking. But as we explore, using the tools of science, our idea of the world constantly changes, and it's recomputed. So just as we understand the future to be a reflection of the present, so is the past. Which brings us to the mystical notion of being situated within the eternal now, because that is all there is. As this character in Fringe says, No one can see the future. You're right. There is no future. There's no past. Everything happens right now. Within mysticism, as even the Jedi embody in the inferior Star Wars prequels, for instance, the fight scene with Darth Maul when he pauses between the, what are they, energy barriers, because within that moment there is nothing to do but rest and all other energy is futile. So he pauses because he understands that that moment that he is in, anything else is unnecessary. And then when the next moment comes, he acts because he is living within the now. Now, for some actual science, I will read to you briefly from an article, The Man Who Saw Time Stand Still. The article reads, I looked up at the shower head and it was as if the water droplets had stopped in midair, he says. They came into hard focus rapidly over the course of a few seconds. Where you'd normally perceive the streams as more of a blur of movement, he could see each one hanging in front of him, distorted by the pressure of the air moving past. The effect, he recalls, was very similar to the way the bullets travelled in the Matrix movies. It was like a high-speed film slowed down. 
It's easy to assume that time flows at the same rate for everybody. But experiences like Baker's show that our continuous stream of consciousness is a fragile illusion stitched together by the brain's clever editing. By studying what happens during such extreme events, researchers are revealing how and why the brain plays these temporal tricks. In some circumstances, they suggest all of us can experience time warping. Although Baker is perhaps the most dramatic case, a smattering of strikingly similar accounts can be found intermittently in medical literature. They are reports of time speeding up, the so-called Zeitstrafe phenomenon, and also more fragmentary experiences called akinetopsia, in which motion momentarily stops. For instance, travelling home one day, one 61-year-old woman reported that the movement of the closing train doors and fellow passengers was in slow motion and, in quotes, broken up, as if in freeze frames. A 58-year-old Japanese man, meanwhile, seemed to be experiencing life like a badly dubbed movie. In conversation, he found that, although others' voices sounded normal, they were out of sync with their faces. There may be many more unreported cases. Of particular interest is an area of the visual cortex called V5. This region, which lies towards the back of the skull, has long been known to detect the motion of objects, but perhaps it has a more general role in measuring the passing of time. When Dominicia Buetti and colleagues at the University of Lausanne, Switzerland, zapped the area with a magnetic field to knock out its activity, her subjects found it tricky to do two things. They struggled to track the motion of dots on a screen, as would be expected, but also found it hard to estimate how long blue dots appeared too. One explanation for this double failure is that our motion perception system has its own stopwatch, recording how fast things are moving across our vision. And when this is disrupted by brain injury, the world stands still. For Baker, stepping into the shower might have exacerbated the problem, since the warm water would have drawn the blood away from the brain to the extremities of the body, further disturbing the brain's processing. Another explanation comes from the discovery that our brain records its perceptions in discrete snapshots. Exactly, apparently, like the frames of a film reel. The healthy brain reconstructs the experience and glues together the different time frames, says Rufin van Roolen at the French Center for Brain and Cognition Research in Toulouse. But if brain damage destroys the glue, you might only see the snapshots. Reports of time standing still are also common during a life-threatening accident. In one survey of people who had skirted close to death, more than 70% reported the feeling that the event occurred in slow motion. Some researchers claim that they are simply an artifact of memory, since the intense emotions lead us to lay down more details, or more frames, I guess, so that we believe the event lasted for longer only in hindsight, which is 2020. But the descriptions certainly sound close to those reported by the neurological patients, suggesting there may be some overlap. For example, one person told researchers in the 1970s how they vividly remembered seeing the face of a trained engineer during a near-fatal collision. It was like a movie runs slowly so the frames progress with a jerky motion. That was how I saw the face. The face of death. What's more, Valtteri Artisiola at the University of Turku, Finland, points out that many of these subjects also report abnormally quick thinking. As one pilot who'd faced a plane crash in the Vietnam War put it, when the nose wheel strut collapsed, I vividly recalled, in a matter of about three seconds, over a dozen actions necessary to successful recovery of flight altitude. Reviewing the cases and available scientific research on the matter, Arztilia concluded that an automatic mechanism triggered by stress hormones might speed up the brain's internal processing to help it handle the life or death situation. Our thoughts and initiation of movements become faster because we are working faster. 
the external world appears to slow down. It is even possible that some athletes have deliberately trained themselves to create a time warp on demand. Surfers, of course, it would be surfers. Surfers, for instance, can often adjust their angle in the split second it takes to launch off sleep waves as the water rises overhead. And that's some science about how what we think of as a continuous time stream is actually constructed within our little meat sacks in our brains and then, you know, clearly uploaded to a higher dimensional consciousness storage device in the figurative cloud that is the collective conscious and unconscious and the divine mind. So, mysticism, science, pop culture, the little bit I have written down in conclusion says time consciousness spec fix sketches the vectors of future history and makes possible new maps gives us fresh devices to chart our way to update Sarah Connor's classic and misguided I would have it phrase from Terminator 2 she said no fate what we make but I would say no fate but what we computate because every moment when we begin to understand it contains the possibility of a whole new world and we can understand that the line of progress that we're on is not necessarily set in stone and that we can change not just what's going to happen but who we are ourselves, which is a nice way to look at things. And that is why the mystics spend a lot of time pondering these kind of things with their Zen cones and riddles and roomy poem and the other guy with his donkey that we love. Yes. So that will conclude... For the time being, little time joke there, hey, until I see you, or you hear me, next time, time fans, when we commence our regular season. And now here's a montage of Shiva's thoughts upon the nature of living in the eternal now, as the canine species does and can instruct us upon by us examining their manner and being. Thank you.